Welcome to Going Off the Record. I'm Colin Williams, and this is where I talk with the executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, and changemakers working to make this world a little bit better every day. You'll hear their true stories, their failures, their successes, and most importantly, you'll learn what makes them tick. So let's get going off the record. Hey, everybody, this is Colin back here with another episode of Going Off the Record. This one is an outstanding one. I am super excited today. Dory McWhorter, the CEO and president, I believe, of YMCA. Want to make sure I get that right, but you can tell us all your titles and all that good stuff. But Dory is just a fantastic person, a person who's done amazing things, truly been influential in Chicago um, and outside too. But thanks, Dory. I really appreciate you being here. I'm excited to do this. Well, I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So what I always typically like to do is I really want to get the story from ground zero, right? So please tell us about where you're from, family, parents, siblings, all that good stuff. We want to hear the true grassroots of how Dory became. Well, thank you, Colin. I'm always surprised if anyone's remotely interested (laughs) in anything, Dory. So I appreciate that. So I actually was born here in Chicago. However, my mom moved us to Racine, Wisconsin. So just over the border, um, northern border of Chicago when I was two years old. And so born in Chicago, raised in Wisconsin. However, spent my time as a youth going back and forth during the summers in Chicago. And and so I feel like I'm a a well-rounded Midwestern girl having that exposure to both the the city life and the not so major city life in Racine, Wisconsin. So that's where my roots are, though. Very cool. So siblings, do you have brothers, sisters, anything? I do. I do. I have I have a sister. We share the same mother and father. And then I have other siblings that we have the same father, but different mothers. So yes. Sure. Very cool. Yeah, so there's, I think, a total of five of us. So you get an interesting juxtaposition of growing up in Chicago and Racine. What did your mom do that brought you to Racine? What What was the the dynamic there? So my mom um, followed my dad there where his background was that he had grown up in Mississippi. And so part of the great migration, like so many folks in Chicago that came from Mississippi or have roots in Mississippi that came up here for the the great life and the job opportunities offered in the manufacturing space. And so my dad actually worked at Case making agricultural and construction equipment. And so I think being in Wisconsin and just, you know, seeing that, that, you know, as we think about that strong Midwest working value, you know, that working values that Midwestern folks have definitely was my experience in Wisconsin. And then, you know, Chicago was where we came to also have a lot of fun and hang out with the cousins and go shopping and all of that. So, yeah. <laughs> this is a little known piece of my history, but I, I'm curious to hear where you guys are from in Mississippi and if there's any still connection down there. I actually spent my first year as a lawyer in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, wow. Um, it's funny when I was down there, everybody thought I had the accent. I thought, oh, that, I thought they all had the accent. It was a fantastic experience. I get a lot of confused looks and say, why did you do that? And there's a million different reasons I did it. It was a great firm. I love the people. I thought, honestly, the people from Mississippi are probably the friendliest, warmest people. And I'm a Midwesterner, so this is saying a lot uh, that I've ever met. But I'm curious to hear 
if you still have any roots there, where are you from in Mississippi? Oh, absolutely. So I know Jackson very well because my my father's hometown um, was Macomb, Mississippi, which is about a couple hours south of Jackson. And so spent a lot of time in Macomb and just had so much fun. Just, you know, we, those were the days, right, that you could walk around being, you know, 10 years old and no one worried about you because everyone literally in Macomb, Mississippi, I think is my cousin. Right? So, <laughs> That's great. so it just, you know, it's fascinating, though, as particularly as an adult, as I, you know, have seen, of course, movies and, of course, even the stories that my father told about, you know, the civil rights era and growing up in Mississippi. It's, you know, it's hard to believe that that's the same place that we used to run around barefoot in as yeah. children, right? Because yeah. that legacy is still there in the state. But but from a child, from a child's perspective, and just having a different experience being of that next sort of generation right after the civil rights movement, it was a different experience for us. It is amazing because it just wasn't that long ago. I mean, oh, I yeah. it's getting longer ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And my experience as a northerner when I went down there is that, and I had the same experience in Germany, actually, mm-hmm. that there's just a lot of guilt, a lot of residual guilt, um, particularly from the people, they weren't alive. Like they weren't alive during these times, but they understand the perception of Mississippi from the outside and work incredibly hard to change that perception because they're so concerned that people think a certain way about them. I'll be bluntly honest, I went to college in Vermont so you think of the liberal Northeast, and I had way more strange experiences in Vermont than I ever did in Mississippi. But I always felt bad because it was almost like people were trying to prove something to me, and I didn't have any preconceived notions about. It. I just said it's Mississippi. I don't know, whatever. You yeah. know, change the flag. That would be a very good idea, and that did happen. But mm-hmm. it was amazing the level of guilt. And like I said, I experienced in Germany too. People said, "Hey, do you guys hate us?" hate you for what? I wasn't alive in the 40s. I don't, you know, things happened. I understand. I think you all acknowledge they were terrible things and you didn't work part of any of it. But I did feel bad. I just thought there was this overwhelming, hey, let's make the Northern guy feel comfortable around here because he may think negatively about us. Oh, Um, that's interesting. You probably, and you were in Jackson too, right? So, you know, it's interesting in Macomb, Mississippi, being very much a Southern town, right? And having that experience. I didn't necessarily, actually, because I was there visiting family all the time, so didn't necessarily have experience outside of what I had in the Black community. But what you saw is that I think, you know, my dad loved Mississippi and we would go there every single summer. And he had traumatic experiences because he would have been in the contemporary age group of Emmett Till. And he also experienced, you know, the threat of brutality for for supposedly stealing something in a store or whatever. And his experience was just really different. And so from a generation perspective, then to have his children go there, but he also expressed so much love for his home state and everything Mississippi that, you know, it's still where he grew up as a child, just like I feel an affinity towards Wisconsin and Chicago. He had that same affinity towards Mississippi, regardless of what some of his experience, my grandfather, you know, of course, during that era, worked in a plant that was bombed because he was primarily black workers there. And I just, but growing up as a child, I just knew granddaddy was burnt. I never understood why. Right. And so, but it's just all so interesting to see some of those dynamics and particularly as an adult to understand that differently now, I think is really important and has absolutely shaped how I approach the work that I do on a daily basis and think about and understand people's experiences are just different, right? Just because 
they grew up in certain eras or they have family or friends that were exposed to different life experiences. And so we have to remember all that as we're looking to try to make this world a better place, right? The people of Mississippi have said, not to go on like a Mississippi stanchion. Oh, sure, sure, sure. No, but it, Rarely but, is Mississippi ever a topic of discussion, so we're right. good. <laughs> no, 100% true. But it, it is the level of pride that people have from the state of Mississippi in the schools, the sports, everything. Uh, it's really kind of a refreshing thing to see. You don't see oh, it. Yeah. I mean, being around Chicago, that's it's interesting now living in Colorado. Coloradans <laughs> are very sort of Midwestern. I think because a lot of people are transplants, there's not sort of that fierce loyalty yeah. um, to the state of Colorado that there is in when I think of people who are from Mississippi or people from Louisiana or people right. from Chicago, that just there's this belief that like my hometown is the best and I will do anything. Right, right. Know. No, that's so true. I was talking to some one of our colleagues actually that's from Mississippi town and, and she's not clearly not as old as my father was, but has that it's home. Pure, yes. right? Yep. And that pride of home, regardless of the history of home, because I mean, everyone has a racist history. It's America. So, right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah. it's America. So let's just be honest. Yeah. Right. And so, but of course, Mississippi had its unique um, issues. But for the folks, particularly the Black folks that are from Mississippi, there's absolutely a pride and yep. nothing wrong with that. Right. And it has everything to do with the communities that were formed and how people took care of each other and loved each other's kids and supported each other's kids and whipped each other's kids. You know, <laughs> all, all of that. Right. But it was your village, too. Yes. And the food is. Oh, absolutely. That's the one thing I still have fond memories of my grandmother's cooking. Right. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it is truly something else. I The worst part of working there was we'd go out for lunch and have like fried catfish and then. Oh, like, my God. Yes. But how do you do it every day? I'm right, like, I, right. I just want to go to sleep after eating one. <laughs> but yeah, it was a ton of fun. So yeah, um, that's not, awesome. to, not to go too deep onto that tangent, but that's yeah. it's super interesting to hear. And I, mm -hmm. I have a serious affinity for Mississippi because of my time spent there and really yeah. just what I learned about it um, and learned mm -hmm. about the people. So. But let's dive in more to you and growing up and, you know, where'd you go to high school? What'd you do? All that good stuff. Sure. So growing up in Racine, Wisconsin, I went to high school at Washington Park High School and actually had such a good time. I know that so many folks look back on their high school experience as absolute horror because of however they were treated. But I actually, high school was a great time for me. It's where I, you know, really found so much support in so many different communities. So I was one of those people. I didn't hang out with the preppies or the, the nerds or the athletes or jocks. I just hung out with everybody yep. and really appreciated everybody. And I, and as I, you know, have gotten older and be, you know, become an adult, I appreciate that experience even more. And I'll have to say one of my proudest accomplishments is that um, my senior year of high school, as you get your sort of senior awards, I got two separate awards. One was for most school spirit because I was captain of the cheerleading squad. Yes. And the other was most likely to succeed. And neither one of those things typically go together. But for me, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that sums it up. I like to party and I like to handle my business. <laughs> so, and so I feel like that's the story of my life. I was like, wow, they knew me so well back then. But I, but that is the story of my life. I think that I just believe that one, that fun, which I think was represented by the spirit and, you know, or the most likely to succeed, that those things are mutually exclusive, Not right? Mutually exclusive. But unfortunately, you know, we've been conditioned in the world that you can't clearly have fun and do good work at the same time, right? I'm like, what? Is that a thing? So I say that to say that I think that um, 
that's always been part of sort of my DNA and yeah. growing up and having those type of experiences and absolutely having fun and loving everything I did, but also knowing very early that I wanted to be an accountant and was taking, you know, of course, some accounting bookkeeping courses in high school, but also, you know, calculus and things like that, but still had a heck of a lot of fun. And, you know, as I mentioned, really hung out with all different groups or, you know, made friends across all those different groups because, you know, everyone has value. And that's something that also sticks with me to this day. It's interesting you say it because I was always an athlete. So interestingly, I was an athlete, but then I also had a musical side. So I sang in chorus, played guitar, played trumpet, drums, did all these different things. And people thought those things sort of... Yeah. In high school, it never really was an issue. But then when I got to college and played football and sang a cappella, people were like, what are you doing? (laughs) These two things don't mix. But it was always this preconceived notions that if you're an athlete, you have to be stupid and particularly a football player, right? That's really, really the reputation that you have to be stupid. You can't be cultural. You can't believe in other things. And what's the fun in that? Like, I loved football. I loved playing football. But it didn't mean I didn't want to do other things. It wasn't my Absolutely. Well, um, I think that that gets to how we tend to see youth living their life more today, that they are allowed to have all of these different interests and not just have to choose one path. But, you know, kind of in my day, people had sort of one perception of you or one thing that you had to sort of choose that one path and go down that. And that actually has never been, you know, I always say that. I enjoy tapas food and I like to live tapas style, like a little bit everything. And so that's how I think of it. But, you know, back at that time, we were never encouraged to explore multiple, you know, interests. It was always like, well, what one thing are you interested in? And what one thing are you good at? You should go after that one thing. I'm like, actually, I'm good at a lot of different things and have all these types of interests. And some of them may align with where people naturally categorize things and some of them don't. And I think that that's sort of the struggle of life, right, for everyone is to make sure that they experience as much as of their interest as possible without being compartmentalized or narrowed into one thing. We're so multifaceted as humans, but unfortunately, we're so often forced to choose one thing or make binary decisions when that's just not the case. Do you know how many times I'm going to use that phrase now, the top of <laughs> lifestyle? That's epic. That's the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever done. I, like I say it all now. the time. It's a, first of all, it's my expression of my love for tapas. But yeah. also, I mean, it really is the best description to me that I do like a little bit of everything. So, Oh, my God. Works. That is absolutely fantastic. All right. So you try a little bit of everything in high school. So my niece is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, just graduated fabulous. two years a year and a half ago. So we love the Badgers, love going up there. So that's where you go. What did you do in college? You obviously went into accounting. Did you know that? Would you study? What are the interesting things that you did? I absolutely knew that I wanted to go into accounting. I actually knew as an 11-year-old. So I was like single track minded (laughs) as it came to accounting. And mostly because I was good at math and I read a nonfiction book report that said an accountant made $30,000 for 30 minutes at a board meeting. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I had no idea what that meant, but it's good. But having said that, so, you know, got to Madison and it's interesting because unlike my high school experience where I was just, you know, having a ball and enjoying meeting all these kind of people at Madison, particularly during that era, What I found is that Madison was extremely just, I felt isolating. And a lot of that had to do with that. At that time, too, thinking about it's in the middle of the state of Wisconsin, which is in a very diverse state. um, What I did learn at the time that 
the representation of African-American students was very little in the state of Wisconsin and particularly University of Wisconsin-Madison itself, as well as then I was further isolated or felt isolated um, as I went into the School of Business, which is a, another area where there just weren't a lot of people of color. And that in and of itself didn't make it hard, but the experiences that I have there made it hard, right? That just a completely different experience. I didn't find people to be warm and friendly and all of that. And um, and actually was just like, couldn't wait to get out of there <laughs> because that, you know, my friends were awesome. I stayed in my first few years, I stayed in all girl dorms. And so I just met the most incredible group of, of young ladies. And we sort of all had the journey of navigating Madison together and, um, and still friends to this day. And, you know, now that I'm on the other side of it and I 30, almost 40 years later, and I sit here and I was like, wow, they were a state school where 75% of the students came from the state. The state is not diverse. And so that's why it's sort of attributed to that type of experience. And so now in my mature head, I could say that. But at the time I was like, this place is horrible. Let me out of here. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and I took all of my, actually, I took all of my electives out of the school of business and took them in African-American studies. And so, you know, I just craved culture because it just didn't reflect that at the school. And it wasn't just my experience. At one time, Kimberly Clark had said that they would stop recruiting at Madison because the students were culturally incompetent. And I really thought that's a true statement. And so I know Madison has done a lot of work since then. And I sit on the School of Business um, Executive Advisory Board to really continue to be supportive of the work that I know that the leaders now are trying to do. And it was fascinating because like Donna Shalala was a chancellor at the time I was there, but the School of Business very specifically was just not diverse and highly isolating. In fact, it was 10 years after school, I met someone that had also gone to the University of Wisconsin and was sitting on one of the business school advisory councils. And when he met me, he's like, wow, you're Dory. You were the last person, the last African-American person to graduate out of accounting in the accounting oh program. God. And that had been 10 years. Oh so, my God. you know, part of it is the culture at the time, but also part of it is it's in Wisconsin. <laughs> so, yeah. yep. so, but having said that, you know, I think now being out of it and saying, okay, that experience quite honestly probably shaped me for corporate America because it is also not, and particularly when I was entering the profession, it was also not very diverse, very, and could be isolating too. But I'm like, I've been here before, so I know what this looks like. <laughs> oh my God. I'm absolutely fascinated by this because I, I know my niece had a fantastic experience. And, sure. And really things have changed over time. I've never actually heard anything, anybody say anything negative about the University of Wisconsin. Yeah. It's good to hear. I hate to say it, it's good to hear because I think what you get, and I, I loved my college, but I, I didn't have the same experiences. I had actually had a lot of trouble with the fact that, no offense to anybody from the East Coast, <laughs> it's a much colder personality. Yeah. So being a Midwesterner where you look somebody in the eye and you say hello, and then meeting people from Boston and New Jersey and New York, where that's just not the culture. Mm-hmm. I also felt in a totally different way, but felt very isolated. Like this is mm-hmm. not, I don't feel like these are my people. I ended up getting a great group of friends. I played football. It all worked out. It all worked out. But yeah. the first year was miserable. Miserable. Yeah. I just felt like I was a very different person from most of the people I was going to school with. Not mm-hmm. the same experience, right? Um, I'm a white guy. I'm aware of that. But it is interesting because 
I think everybody tends to have sort of a rose-colored view of their college mm -hmm. experience and say this is a great place, and the people who don't talk about it. So you right. all hear is the positives, and you never hear the negative sides of things. And that would be very influential in somebody deciding whether or not to go to school in a certain place. So absolutely, um, and and that's the thing too. Like when I used to hear, "Oh, college is the best years of your life," I'm like, "It better get better than this, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It better get better than this." But I do think that there is, you know, it is a different experience for some, and particularly when you're a student of color in you know majority white institutions, it is really a different experience. And and I wasn't prepared for that because even growing up in Wisconsin, growing up in Wisconsin and Racine, Wisconsin, while now that I look at statistically speaking, it wasn't as diverse as it felt. But the kids that I went to school with were very open and very warm. In fact, when I um, got to college, I met sort of a cool white person. They were from Racine. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But I just think from a culture perspective, you know, even my college roommate at the time, she's a lovely person, but I literally was, a, she was from Madison on top of that. And I was the first black person she ever met. And right. so it was just fascinating. And so college for me, you know, even though I was so open, this came from a person who had won most school spirit and most likely to succeed. Like I was like, oh, college, I got this. <laughs> it just, that wasn't my experience. But having said that, of course, I made just wonderful friends that I still have to this day. And, you know, I valued my education and coming out of Madison and particularly being in the school of business was absolutely part of the reason I was able to go on then and, and get my uh, first job at Arthur Anderson being at the time, one of the major accounting firms and all of that happened because I did have that degree from University of Wisconsin. It's a perfect transition, right? So okay. let's get into the career arc and you start out at Arthur Anderson and then what's the path? I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, to so interesting. So I started off at Arthur Anderson and just had, I actually had a pretty unique experience at Anderson because I came on at a time where they were starting a new service line and I was able to sort of transfer out of the traditional audit path that many first year professionals experience and get into more of the sort of light consulting realm that they were entering in at the time relative to the actual space was internal auditing. And the approach that Anderson has was more of a, they actually end up changing the name to business process risk consulting. It was more about understanding business drivers versus auditing the numbers at the end of the day. But yeah. that was really good for me because even when I was at University of Wisconsin, my major was accounting, but then I also at the time would have been total quality management. So more about sort of performance and process improvement. And also had I stayed, um, I took so many electives outside the School of Business that I could have had a triple major in African-American studies. Oh my God. <laughs> so I'll say that because that actually becomes relevant much later. But having said that, you know, when I got to Anderson, I had a great experience being just sort of put on a fast track and having, because they were starting this new unit, being able to work directly with partners, which as a first year person, wasn't always a most common experience because everything was very structural and hierarchical too at, at Arthur Anderson at the time. Being part of this special group just gave me just so much exposure and out allowed me to learn so much and, and really accelerated my career path. And so was with Anderson for for about four years, moved to Atlanta while I was in Anderson, which will come back to another question later about what tell my younger self, perhaps that <laughs> wouldn't have been the move. But however, professionally, or professionally was the move. Personally, I was like, yeah, I may not do that again. But having said that, I just, you know, learning at Anderson was just such a great foundation for my career. And because Anderson taught you how to think and taught you how to be curious, how to be inquisitive, how to look at things in a way that wasn't status quo, right? 
made you ask a different question. They, at the time, had launched global best practices and it would compare seemingly unrelated things and look for the pattern that allowed you to just see opportunities in everything. And so I really appreciated my time in Anderson for learning how to think. But having said that, you know, my first seven years of my career, I had five employers. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So once I left Anderson, it was almost like, you know, tasting the porridge in other places. I was like, yeah, not liking that. So was it I used to say this all the time, Colin, that I was millennial before millennial was a thing, right? So I was doing an average in two years a job way before this millennial started doing it. But it was because, you know, I have a thirst for learning and curiosity. And so when I tap out in that or feel like I've gotten what I can, I'm like out, ready to move on. And so, you know, I went from Anderson to Bell South to Booz Allen to Catholic Healthcare Audit Network to Crow. And that was like within the first sort of seven years of my career, Anderson being the longest stint of that. Interesting. Then you get to Crow. Did you stay at Crow for a while? Yeah, I actually stayed at Crow initially for four years, then left Crow to, I was, you know, going through the life transition at the time I was getting married and thought, you know, I would try to not be on the road so much from a consulting perspective and ended up taking um, the head of audit for Snap-on Tools in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So ended up being there for a little under two years because I like tapas. (laughs) (laughs) I needed to get get on the road again. Well, we, I did a lot of international travel with Snap-on, but just again, from, it's just, you know, being in corporate and industry was very different than the consulting lifestyle. And I really appreciate and enjoy that. So I went back to Crow. So Crow ended up being nine years with a four-year initial stint, left for Snap-on for a couple of years, and then back to Crow for where I was a partner the last five years at Crow and had a great experience being the first Black partner in the firms at that time, 90-year history, and, you know, having an opportunity to experience, you know, that kind of ceiling breaking, but at the same time, recognizing there's so much more to do. And so that that was a great experience and, you know, really was almost the capstone to this long career of management consulting, business consulting, accounting, all of that, and was my last role before I moved into the nonprofit sector. Yep. So let's jump into that. When you moved out of that world and how and why and and what was the first step? And then we can get into YMCA and and evolution to YMCA and all this good stuff. Sure. Well, and the YWCA was what led me to what pulled me into the nonprofit space. When I was a partner at Crow, I had launched the audit committee. I was on the board at the YWCA and had launched the audit committee. So it was really intimately aware of sort of the financial position of the organization. And what I saw was that it was on a continuous decline, but it, it just never, I could never reconcile, how could you do great work, but lose so much money? Right? Yeah. And so for me being a business person, I'm like, yeah, that's because your business model isn't working. And so how can I support that? And so once the CEO transitioned and I was a point in my career that I had just done so many great things and was just like, well, what else can I do to sort of really lean into all that I've think is possible in the world. And part of it was that I had a strong belief that business, the only purpose of business is to do good in society and advance society. And so, you know, as Crow was continuing to, and a lot of companies at that time were continuing to, yes, they supported you on on boards and nonprofit boards, but companies didn't have the same type of, we will create impact sort of social mindset that they do now. And so I really felt that by going to the YW, I had a great opportunity to truly lead a social business by a business that was focused on its social impact, but had zero (laughs) 
<laughs> understanding of this business opportunities. And so that was my first opportunity to truly lean into my worldview of that, you know, social enterprise could be a great strategy to advance the world and create value. And so being at the YW just really became, quite honestly, a laboratory for me to try that. And we were, you know, very successful in the sense that we grew the business from 9 million to 43 million over the last, you know, eight or nine years and, and just really saw a tremendous impact all along the way in that. And so that to me really, again, just made me so excited about the recognition that, hey, we can do both. It doesn't mutually exclusive. Like you can do good and you can create value, but we just have to really own an architect and what that could look like. Nine million to 43 million. That's an outstanding, I mean, it's a shocking number, right? What was it that you went in? Because I'm fascinated by this. So you have a not-for-profit that's doing good things, but the business acumen isn't there. What was it that the YWCUA was doing wrong? What were the opportunities that they were missing? Yeah, really, what I saw was a couple of things. One is that for me, it's always about the people. And so what I first acknowledged was that people don't understand the business we're in, the businesses that we're in. And so I got a leadership team together that understood the business. And quite honestly, I call it my, you know, leadership cocktail with some people for for profit, some people with nonprofit backgrounds. Some of them, the majority of them were already in the why. I just asked them to think differently and do different things and showed them what that looked like for me, right? And being a managed having a management consulting background allowed me to framework things a lot, right? And so help them understand and, and quite honestly teach them about what it means for us to create value and what that looks like and how the impact that we were having was also creating value. We just weren't positioning ourselves to either capture it or ask for it or understand that we actually are creating value while we create impact. We're like, well, we do good work. I'm like, and we're creating value. (laughs) I need us. And once I sort of taught people, you like with their, their, actually when I left, they were 38 million and now they're 43 million because you can't turn it off, right? Once you learn how to, that's why it's important to teach people because once you learn, you cannot unlearn how to do these things and how to think differently and really shift that mindset. And so the, the key thing that we did at the YW was really help people understand that there's opportunity in everything that we do. The question is who wants to support those opportunities and what does that, that support looks like? And we were able to identify different revenue sources, expand some revenue sources, really connect our work to what was happening. Even during the pandemic, we grew. We literally yeah. cannot turn it off. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because I think people think you hear the term not-for-profit. I now in the world, I just think of it as a tax thing. That's um, my line, Colin. It's a tax status, not a business model. Yeah, That's my exactly. thing. <laughs> but there's almost like this level of guilt that if you're an uh, NFP and you earn money or you have lots of revenue, that something's going wrong. No, that's not the case at all. Yeah, that was one of the biggest things for me. And even helping the board understand too, which they were fantastic at, is that, you know, there isn't a separate marketplace for nonprofits. We have to compete for the same talent. We have to compete for the same resources. And we have to leverage those resources and often extend those resources to do more than the average dollar in a for-profit company just because they're so limited. And the expectations around what they can and should do are also limited. And so, you know, For me, it was really about, wow, this is an incredible business and the type of business that I want to be in, which is ultimately helping people improve their lives. Like that is an amazing business. But we have to recognize that the people that are working in that business, they need to get paid. The vendors that are supporting this work need to get paid. And so for us to act like that there's no value that's being exchanged while we do this work is ludicrous. And so for me, it really became about how do I help people understand and know that 
absolutely they're creating value and absolutely we need to capture that value, which is, you know, in other words, it's like, how do we get paid for the work that we do every day and yeah. helping people understand and connect that work to the different revenue sources that are available to us. Oh, and by the way, you know, being that we are a nonprofit, we sort of have that we get that permission to reinvest into back into the work, which ultimately defines the tax status, right? In terms of, you know, the lack of shareholders and the public good and yep. us being able to do that was didn't mean no. That's like, we can use that. No, not profit doesn't mean no revenue. Like, right. I didn't even understand. There's a difference. I even talked to like a guy that I was talking to and he was telling me about, oh, you know, I'm on this nonprofit board and it's so wonderful. And I said, what's their revenue? And he's like, they don't have revenue. I was like, well, yeah. that poor organization won't be around long. But, but then I said, well, what's their operating expenditure or whatever? And so he could answer the question. But but it's fascinating how people just affiliate, you know, revenue or the lack of revenue with nonprofit. That's why I don't even like the word. It's like Mufasa. It's like, like we shouldn't say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's some bad term. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. this is a tax it, status. It's a tax status. <laughs> and we kind of remember we're in a capitalist society. And so... It's the world. I mean, our whole society, our structure is defined by capital and profit. So, yeah, yeah that's not an evil thing. Yeah, it's it, not an evil thing. Now, some people may be evil when they did those things, but the thing in and of itself is an evil. It's what it's the creation that we make it. Yep. So now I'm curious about at what point did you say I've done what I can do at the YWCA and I'm going to move on and why and what was that transition like? One of the major drivers for me is that we were really rocking and rolling at the YWCA. And I felt that, you know, you can sort of take a look and say, wow, people get it right. As I mentioned, they were always making things happen sort of with or without me. And as the opportunity at the YMCA was bubbling up and I had actually, ironically, I had a former colleague that I work with at Crow reach out to me and and who's at the YMCA and said, you know, you should look at this job description. And I have to say, I felt like it was almost written exactly for me. One, I I have to say that I thrive on change and transformation. And I really saw that. (laughs) 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 And I just saw this organization that could have, that was already doing great work and had the capacity to do even more and was really in a, a state that required transformation given that, It had experienced significant losses during COVID. As you know, a large part of its business was um, in the membership fitness sort of center type model, which were required to be closed. And so they lost so much revenue during that time, um, almost a 50% decline. And so, as you know, as we continue to come out of the quarantine part of the pandemic, since we're still in the pandemic, but we're coming out of that, the question becomes, well, what next? And that to me is like, ooh, I get my, you know, evil genius fingers going, but evil genius for good fingers, like, hmm, what can we do with this, right? And so it was really an attraction. So with the YW, I was like, oh, they're good. We did great things there. We got great folks there. They'll keep it moving. They'll keep that plate spinning. This is an opportunity, absolutely, on the right track and will continue going in a great direction. The YM, there was a lot of opportunity to really leverage the platform. And what I loved about it is that I could literally work with every single demographic at the YMCA. Of course, at the YWCA, the focus was absolutely women. And of course, we served men in different capacities, particularly in the workforce development area. But with the YMCA, it was was built in that we could work with everyone, every age demographic, every every culture, every gender, like we could just literally work with everybody. It's built into the mission. And so for me, that was exciting to have this type of platform to 
do great work. And because of the membership model being almost by default sort of a social venture and the fact that, you know, we compete with for-profit fitness centers, but of course the the revenues we receive go to support the the range of work that we do. I was just like, wow, this is a great social enterprise just waiting to be greater. So wanted yep. to be a part of that. My pride, my home will always be Chicago. Um, Chicago, I think, has had a little bit of a rough run of it. Maybe that's being too harsh. Maybe it's being too friendly. I don't know. I guess it's in the eye of the beholder. But what do you see as the YMCA's sort of mission and trying to, I don't want to say get Chicago back on track. I don't know what the right term is. I just know. I, that- I did say help Chicago fulfill its potential. I say that a lot because I feel like Chicago isn't all that it can be given the amount of resources we have here is an amazing city an amazing global economic center that the challenges that we have are absolutely, you know, an opportunity that we have to demonstrate and show the world that we can be better as a city, as a people within the city. And when I say city, I mean, Chicago land in the region. Right. And so I just, so that is what's so attractive to me is that I do believe that the Y has such an opportunity to make Chicago a better place and use its platform to engage with people, provide the types of services and really be a beacon in each community that we sit in or choose to participate in, in so many different ways, whether we have a physical site there or we run programs and other sites. I just think that, and that's my thing. It's like, if there's a why there and that community isn't thriving, then what else can we do and how should we be doing that? And so that sort of is the mandate that I have for us relative to using the why as a platform to make things better. I don't think there's a better city in the world. I agree um, with you, Colin. (laughs) I had dinner the other night with an investor and she said, you know, I agree. I think the same thing about Chicago. So why is it that we're always just on the fringe of becoming that global powerhouse? And I said, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I feel what you're saying, which is like, why do we, I mean, the second city thing, forget about that. But why do we always sort of feel like we're trying to catch up to New York and L.A.? I would much rather be in Chicago than New York and L.A., but there is this perception of why aren't we quite there? I don't know the answer, but it's... Yeah, it's interesting. So Aaron Hurst wrote a book called The Purpose Economy, and it talks about how people fulfilling their purpose will be the drivers of the economic condition of and of the environment. Right. And so, but what was fascinating to me is that when I saw him first speak about the book, he said, you know, the Midwest Chicago has such an opportunity to lead the rest of the country in purpose. And that really resonated with me. And I'm like, wow, if we could actually help people and we've actually changed the YMCA's mission statement. So it's hot off the presses, but we've changed the mission from, I actually don't remember what it was now because I'm so committed to the new one. There's something about youth and families. So it was great. It was great. But um, our new mission says that we're committed to strengthening communities by helping all people unleash their purpose and potential helping all people connect to their purpose and potential and each other. And at the end of the day, I'm like, that's where we want the entire world to be. And if we can demonstrate that in Chicago by, you know, truly helping people fulfill whatever that purpose and that wherever that potential is and and feel good about who they are and connect with others and feel good about who they are. I know it sounds so Pollyanna-ish, but it's like, wow, what can be accomplished? Because we don't even know the possibilities because everyone's all always suffering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I love it. I'm glad you changed it. It's, Thank you. <laughs> this is all 
fascinating. Now we get to my favorite part of this entire thing, which is the lightning round. Okay. Um, the goal of this is just, I'm going to ask you a question. It's don't think too deeply about it. It's the first thing that pops in your head and the reason that pops in. Um, and just, but I will tell you when I first started doing this, I thought the answers would be much more superficial. And what I found is that they're a lot more interesting and there's a lot more depth to them than I ever thought there would be. That doesn't mean yours can't be superficial. Be as superficial as you possibly want, but I'm no just pressure. amazed. Yeah, no pressure. But I am amazed by the responses I get and, and just how how thoughtful they actually are. So if you're ready, we'll get rolling. I'm ready, let's go. All right, favorite movie and why? Favorite movie is like Water for Chocolate, mostly because I just love that it's just it really challenges you to look at norms and why we do have certain customs or what that looks like. And so I just love that movie. And I just think that something I live by, it's like, why are we doing things this way? We don't have to do that. So I love that. Fascinating. See there. I mean, I always thought like you, animal house, like <laughs> my favorite movie. Yeah. Be like, I get it. Right. It's incredibly interesting to me. Okay. So favorite book and why? Probably law of attraction by Esther and Jerry Hicks. Good. All right. This one's the most interesting one. Favorite person and why? Oh, my father by he's just don't tell my mama. <laughs> it's a photo finish. It's a photo finish. And my husband. Oh, my God. My dad, I just, you know, he's by far. I just think that, you know, God broke the mold when he made him. He's just such a just an amazing individual. And I just feel that some of that halo effect that he's deceased. And so automatically looks a, a thousand percent better. You never remember the bad times, but he's just a person sure. that was so humble, so kind to others, helped me, you know, really walk away with a few things that I live by. One, he really treated everyone fairly and kindly. And I just love that and really helped me understand and live into the fact that everyone does have value. And he used to always say that no man is better than you, but you're no better than anybody. And I'm like, Got it. And so, yeah, he's just a good egg. So Perfect. that's a good on him. <laughs> no, that one's fair. I mean, it, it is interesting. You always think like, oh, what do you say? Your parents, your siblings, your another. <laughs> yeah, he's one of my, yeah, he's my favorite that's, person. Good. That's why I, I like the challenge, though. That's what. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? Mean people. I just don't understand why people aren't kind in every chance they get. Like, I just see people yelling at a McDonald's worker or a store clerk. I'm like, really? Is that necessary? I just, that's just, oh, it just bothers me. I always say it's significantly more difficult to be mean to somebody than it is to be nice. It you would think no so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, just uh, I'm like, tone it down 20 notches. Not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Best place you've ever traveled to? Outside of Chicago, Paris. Okay. That's a good one. For the food or the culture? Or for the culture, else. for the culture, just yeah, for the culture. Okay. In ten years, you'll be doing what? Hopefully, leading um, an organization, a large social enterprise organization that's demonstrating what it means to create value and great social impact at the same time. I love it. So this ties into that, and the number can differ, right? Because you know, I've had some people now that have, their number is already astronomically high. So I'll just use a placeholder and it can be whatever number that you have in your head. But if somebody handed you $10 million, are you done? Are you retiring? No, no, not at all. There's no dollar amount, actually, that would make me retire because I do see work as the way we, you know, sort of create contribution to the world. And so there's, it's not about the dollars. It really is about the contribution. So, yeah. Perfect. All right. Last one. What's the most important trait that you look for in people? 
learning to see if they're willing oh, to I learn. I like that one. To see I if like they're willing to learn because we have so much to learn. We all have something to learn. And so if folks, if I meet folks that just feel like they know it all or they have nothing else to learn, that's a red flag big time. Yeah. That's yeah. super interesting. Like, so I would tie that into curiosity. Right? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. That, you know, curiosity and learning to me are just the most two important traits that we have as humans that, that allow us to expand. Right. And so if we, if we don't do those two things, we don't expand. Yeah. If and it is, it's about expansion to me. If you're expansion not growing. It to be a better human. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not growing, you're dying. Um, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Well, this was fantastic. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on. I really, really appreciate your story. Is Like I said, everybody's story is fascinating. Yours is at the very top of most fascinating that I've spoken to. So once again, thank you for being on. I really appreciate it. And if I keep doing this and it's successful, we could have you on again. We can catch up and see what's going on if that's a deal. Absolutely, absolutely. It was such a pleasure, Colin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.